Episode 31, Feudalism. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and we try to see how those events shaped our modern world. Now, you've probably heard of Prince William and his wife, Kate. You might have heard of their official titles, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. Or maybe you've heard of William's dad, Prince Charles. He's the Prince of Wales. Have you ever wondered where these titles come from? I mean, William and Kate don't own the city of Cambridge or anything, do they? Is Prince Charles in some way in charge of Wales? I mean, the British territory of Wales, not the seed-dwelling mammal. He's definitely not in charge of those. Where do these titles and other titles like Duke and Vicomte, Baron, Marquis, Earl, Lord, and Count, where do they actually come from? They come from feudalism. That's where they come from. But where does feudalism come from, you may well ask. It's a good question and definitely important in the medieval period where we are right now because feudalism basically describes the entire economic, political, religious, and social fabric of most of Europe during the Middle Ages and on into the modern world. And it's worth taking a podcast episode to talk about it here and now because the family rivalries that were established during feudalism were basically the cause of World War I and then World War II as well and a bunch of other wars before that. That's why I'm taking this whole podcast episode to describe feudalism and how it came about. The structure of feudalism created families of tremendous wealth and prestige, and the rivalries of the feudal area definitely affected our modern world even up to today. The word feudal comes from a Latin word for fief, that is F-I-E-F, fief, which is a type of chunk of land that was granted by a rich landowner to someone else. It was granted by a lord to a vassal in return for the vassal's loyalty and service. Feudalism primarily began as a set of political or military relationships. These were extended all throughout society and formalized over time so that eventually all of Europeans lived for centuries according to feudal customs and relationships, both political and social. The phrase feudal system first appears in print, ironically, in 1776 in Adam Smith's book, The Wealth of Nations, where he describes the feudal economy and the feudal system, and he basically makes the point that it is being replaced by a capitalistic system. 1776 was the death knell of feudalism in another way as well, and we'll come back to that thought. Feudalism, as a political system, was a new thing that characterized the Middle Ages. It hadn't been there during the ancient period. It was different from the city-states of Greece, different from the Roman Republic or the Roman Empire, different from the tribal kings that ruled the barbarian tribes. It was a new type of social structure and economic structure. And the real key to it was land and who owned which piece of land. After Charlemagne, all the territories of Western Europe were kind of a mess. France, Germany, Italy, Britain, none of them had strong central government. And so local territorial rulers created their own private armies. Some of these local leaders were called dukes, which comes from the Latin word dux, D-U-X, which means leader. A lot of these dukes were squabbling with each other. So one duke would take his own private army and attack another duke and then take that duke's land. Rich local landowners were 
constantly fighting with each other. And they also oppressed the local farmers in their land with taxes. And no one agreed who was in charge of the whole system. The rich had to have some kind of army to help keep themselves and their positions safe and also to defend each other. So one duke would sometimes have to ally with another duke against a third duke or against the Vikings or against some other tribe. And the poor on the other end of the spectrum were so poor that they had to sell themselves into service of the local duke in order to have any measure of protection or security themselves. This became the root of feudalism. The poor sold their service to the rich in exchange for protection, provision, or a place to live. At the core of this was the idea that most of the land was owned by the very, very rich, who held huge, large tracts of land, large holdings of land, and the poor had no access to owning their own land. On a small scale, this is how feudalism works. Starting back with William the Conqueror, right? Who, after conquering England, he viewed all of England as his own personal land. So, William the Conqueror gives you, his buddy, a huge tract of land. You're one of the Norman buddies who fought with him. In return, though, you have to swear your allegiance to him, and you have to agree to provide William with some troops from time to time and pay taxes to him, right? Because you still have to fight off the Vikings. You still have to have a standing army. The Vikings are still out there, and they're still a problem. So you agree. You kneel before William, and now you're a duke. You're the duke, let's just say, of the area that William has given you, which was in northeast England, the area that we now call Yorkshire. So now you are the Duke of Yorkshire. So you ride up to Yorkshire with your, with your friends and you find out that Yorkshire is actually really, really large. In fact, it's way too big for you to manage the whole place effectively by yourself. So you take some of your buddies or perhaps your second son or nephew or something and you give them one of the for, sort of far distant parts of your land and say, you're in charge of that, right? You have to watch over that land for me because it's too far away. In return, they have to swear loyalty to you, like you did to the king. So now your buddy is the Earl of South Yorkshire, and he has to pay you taxes. And if you call all of your earls together for a council, they all have to come to your castle or manor or whatever big house you live in and and be there for your council. The earls have to pay you taxes, and they have to provide soldiers if someone is attacking the general territory of Yorkshire. So if the Scots come riding down from Scotland, raiding their way through Yorkshire, all of the earls will ride out together with all of their men to defend the duke and the whole territory of Yorkshire. That's a set of military and political and social relationships. And if a huge army of Vikings threatens all of England, the king can summon all the dukes and tell them to provide men and horses to defend England against the Vikings. And so the dukes call all their earls Everybody brings their men together, and they ride off together to go meet the king and fight the Vikings. It's a kind of a mutual self-defense system that's built on family relationships and hereditary inheritance of titles and land. And so when you, the Duke of Yorkshire, eventually get old and die, your eldest son will inherit the title and the land. The system is very hierarchical. That is, it's very clear who ranks higher than you and lower than you. And this system created a very hierarchical society overall, not just the nobles who owned the land, but everybody was part of this social ranking system. It was pretty rigid, too. People from the upper classes did not mingle much with the people from the lower classes, and there wasn't much social mobility either. You were basically stuck in the class you were born in. Occasionally, someone would you know, marry someone from a higher class, and then they would be part of that higher class. Think Elizabeth Bennett here. 
Another way to rise in class would be to be a soldier for a lord, and if you served well, you might be rewarded with land or a title. Think about Game of Thrones as an example, right? House Bolton and House Frey were supposed to be loyal to House Stark, which was supposed to be loyal to the king. In response to their loyalty, they were given land, and that's how they got these houses, right? In Game of Thrones, though, the supposed to be loyal was an important plot point. And yes, the last two seasons of the TV show were bloody awful, and so don't go watch any of it. Its ending is so bad, it really ruins the entire series and makes it all completely unwatchable. But they did get right the bit about how the lords granted land to other lords in exchange for service. So Game of Thrones was depicting a feudal society in the way the society was structured socially. Now feudalism affected economics too. The peasants lived on land that was owned by the lord. They didn't own their own land, the peasants. The, the lord owned it. Whether that lord was a duke or an earl or some minor baron, whatever, the peasants did not own their own land. The peasants had to pay taxes to the lord and sometimes have to pay rent for the house that they were living in, as well as providing labor, produce from the things that they farmed, and they also sometimes had to provide men to be in the army of that particular lord. All the things that grew or lived on the lord's land, whether it's produce like uh, wheat growing or sheep or something like that, they're technically the lords, and the peasants got to keep some of those things they grew for themselves, but the peasants usually didn't own much of anything. They rented their home, which is, of course, owned by the lord, so they had to pay him rent either in the form of produce, labor, or military service. The peasants, who are also called serfs, were little more than agricultural slaves, and in some European societies, the serfs were considered to be part of the land. If you sold someone 500 acres of land, you sold them the 500 serfs that lived on that land as well. The serfs had very few rights, and they were often treated very badly by the nobility. This abuse is the core of the Robin Hood story, a group of peasants who took over the forest of Nottingham and basically lived in rebellion against the Lord of Nottingham, who also happened to be titled the Sheriff of Nottingham. It's a story of a peasant rebellion at some level. But besides the lords and the serfs, there were other classes, including the clergy, knights, and merchants. The church had its own hierarchy, and it fit in nicely with the feudal hierarchy. The archbishop of a place, like the Archbishop of Canterbury, for example, um, was something like a duke about that same level in society, below the king, but pretty high up in society. A bishop was sort of like an earl and on down through the church hierarchy. Think about Mr. Collins in Pride and Prejudice, who had become something of a minor noble by being named the rector of the parsonage at Rosings. And he sort of let that go to his head, didn't he? There were also knights in the system. And they were officially commissioned soldiers who had gone through a special ceremony commissioning them as knights of a particular lord. Knights were sworn into the service of a particular lord, and then they were considered to be low-level noblemen once they had gone through this ceremony. The process of swearing in someone as a knight was called investiture, and it entitled the knight to be called lord. So if you, now a humble peasant, met a knight, you'd have to bow to him and say, My lord? and carry on your way. During the investiture ceremony, knights also had to swear to uphold a code of chivalry. Now, this included loyalty to the king and to their lord, but it also included a lot of other good principles that the knight was supposed to uphold. 
There's a very old epic called the Song of Roland, which was written in France around 1100 AD, and it has a list of principles that Roland, the knight, was supposed to uphold as he got invested into this knighthood. Here's the list. To fear God and maintain his church. To serve the Lord in valor and faith. To protect the weak and defenseless. To give succor to widows and orphans. To refrain from the wanton giving of offense. To live by honor and for glory. To despise pecuniary reward. To fight for the welfare of all. To obey those placed in authority. To guard the honor of fellow knights. To eschew unfairness, meanness, and deceit. To keep faith. And at all times to speak the truth. To persevere to the end in any enterprise begun. To respect the honor of women. Never to refuse a challenge from an equal. Never to turn the back upon a foe. So that list describes some rules that are rules about fighting, but mostly it's a list of how to live honorably. In some ways, the knights were kind of the police of the day, upholding justice and honor and also helping those in need. It's a pretty good code of conduct, honestly, that maybe we should consider imposing upon our modern-day politicians and public servants, or on all of us, podcasters included. One of the things we are lacking today in this world is a set of principles like this that people choose to live by. Plus, it'd be nice to have that cool ceremony where they make you a knight. They still do that ceremony today at times where the noble taps the commoner on the shoulder with a sword, thus investing them as a minor noble themselves. Only certain higher nobles have the right to invest someone as a new noble. Nowadays, the ceremony is more used to reward famous people for being famous than it is for actually investing people to be actual knights. So people like Elton John, Richard Harris, or even Angelina Jolie have been knighted. I'm guessing that nowadays they don't have these people swear to abide by the code of chivalry. Today, I think it's more of a ceremony welcoming those people into the oligarchy and saying something like, okay, you're no longer a commoner, you're one of us now, the elite. It's not really a noble knight thing anymore anyway, that's for sure. It's kind of the opposite, in fact. Okay, back to feudalism. In addition to knights, there were also merchants. Most of the merchant class lived in the larger towns or cities. In the larger towns, people could actually buy and sell houses. So in a sense, they were sort of removed from the core of feudalism. If you were a successful silversmith, for example, you could perhaps buy your own house in the town rather than having to rent from the Lord. The merchants in the towns and cities began to grow wealthier, especially in the big cities like London, Paris, and other big cities in Europe. And eventually, many of them accumulated enough wealth to buy up their own land and perhaps sometimes their own titles. There were also a lot of poor people in the cities. One of the hallmarks of feudalism was a pretty dramatic wealth gap. The majority of the people were very, very poor, and the few at the top controlling nearly all the land, wealth, and means of production, they were very rich. The rich were very rich, the poor were very poor, and there was not a lot of middle class in between them. Though, the growing merchant class did begin to change this, and in fact, the migration of a great deal of the wealth of England and other parts of Europe from the nobility to the merchant class, especially during the Industrial Age, began to undo feudalism. The colonists in America also had a hand in undoing feudalism because they set up a non-feudal society in the northern colonies, though they did set up feudal 
colonies somewhat in the southern colonies. But all of the colonists were notoriously without titles. There was no Duke of South Carolina, for example. Some of the original land was indeed granted as feudal land grants to certain people to go start a colony, but the colonists who moved over there and lived there created a society that was much more based on merchant success than it was based on hereditary titles. You remember that I said earlier that 1776 was the death knell of feudalism? Well, one way of understanding the American Revolution is to see it as a struggle between Great Britain, who was trying to treat the colonies as feudal lands, still owned by the crown, and thus the colonists owed them homage and taxes. But meanwhile, the colonists themselves saw themselves as free merchants, and the colonial land was theirs, not the king's, and thus they were entitled to be treated as free men, as merchants, and given representation in the House of Commons. But the government of Great Britain saw it differently and refused to treat them as free or equal. As it says in the American Declaration of Independence, But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Well, the colonists did exactly this. The colonists saw the actions of the British government as being a long train of abuses, trying to enforce a type of despotism wherein the people of the colonies had no rights for themselves and had no representation in the government. The people were totally subject to the abuse of the government without recourse. So this led to the American Revolution. The American Revolution led to changes in Great Britain, and more dramatically, it led to the French Revolution, which was a pretty violent, bloody reaction in itself against feudalism and the feudal society and structure of France. So was the Soviet Revolution of 1917 and various other revolutions in between. Old feudal societies that had come now to be dominated by big wealthy cities threw off the social structure of feudalism that was dominated by the families that owned the land in the countryside. The power structure of feudalism just did not work in the industrial age, which was dominated by the wealth of merchants and capitalists. The industrial age was better suited to a system of free men and free markets than it was to a system of feudalism. It's interesting to note today the similarities in the United States to the way it was at the time of the colonial revolution. As a central federal government has begun to unilaterally remove the rights and the sovereignty of each state. And another similarity, it seems increasingly clear, that it's not the people in public office that are actually making the decisions. It seems clear that there are people behind the puppets. This is the similar to feudal times in a sense that there was a king and a king's court, but it was often really the wealthy landowners, the wealthy families, the dukes and the earls and the rest, who really held the power in the medieval system. When we get to the Magna Carta in England, we'll see these landowners banding together, basically to just tell the king what to do. And in some ways, our system today is very similar. There are wealthy people behind the scenes who pull the strings of the people that we see as politicians on television. I saw a comment once that modern politicians should all wear uniforms like a race car driver so that we could tell from all the different company logos on the shirts and on the pants which big company sponsors which politician. Joe Biden brought to you by Pfizer Pharmaceuticals and our ongoing research into Alzheimer's and other forms of dementia.
It may be that the ongoing social upheaval in the West is another example of the medieval feudal struggle between the extremely wealthy families at the top of the social economic structure and the rest of us. It's the lords versus the peasants all over again. Next episode, we'll take a look at a complex and often misunderstood part of the early Middle Ages as we journey with a few worthy knights and we head into the Crusades. (laughs) 